This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Pre-recorded from Joe's mom's basement, it's a rewind episode of The Stacking Benjamin Show. Hey everyone, I'm Griffin the Intern, or like the guys down at the Rotary Club like to call me, The Fintern. To come clean, I was actually a little excited to come down to the basement today. I guess this announcer on the mic stuff grows on you after a while. Well, I was excited until I saw this absolute disaster of a basement. I'm sure this had something to do with the closing ceremonies of the Winter Olympic last night, but do they really have to leave bowls of crusted queso sauce everywhere? And who got all these popcorn crumbs on the keyboard? I know you're not supposed to learn anything on this show, but here's some advice. It's never a good idea to eat popcorn at your computer. But that got me thinking, did the guys ever do an interview with someone about bad work practices? Turns out they did. It took a little digging, but I found episode 215, The Bullies of Wall Street, with former FDIC chairman Sheila Bear. Sheila and Joe cover everything from the predatory lending practices leading up to the 2007 financial crisis, to the initial big private meetings between bankers when the sky seemed to be falling, and Miss Bear's thoughts on how to prevent the same problems in the future. And that's not all. The co-host for this episode is the founder of the Bigger Pockets community and co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, Josh Dorkin. One last note, disregard any investment info or giveaway mentions because this episode was first released in June of 2015. Enjoy, Finturn out. Alright, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Live from my parents' basement in Texarkana, Texas, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. On today's podcast, former FDIC chairman Sheila Baer. What really happened during the 2007 mortgage crisis and how can we prevent it from happening again? Sheila's written a new book called The Bullies of Wall Street and she'll talk all things greed and market crashes on today's podcast. Hey everybody, I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter, and welcome to today's show. Sheila Bear topped the Wall Street Journal's 2009 list of 50 women to watch. She's been on Time's list of the 100 most influential people, and Forbes listed her in 2009 as the second most powerful woman in the world behind Angela Merkel. But she's not the only powerful person on this show. This guy's website gets over 5 million visits per month and his podcast is consistently in the top three in the investing category on iTunes. It's the one and only Josh Dorkin for Bigger Pockets. What's going on, man? Welcome to the party. Welcome to the basement. Holy smokes. Look at those board games. <laughs> I know. <laughs> How long you want to stay around? I love this, man. I want to come hang out and play. Will you be my friend, Josh? I love you. <laughs> so tell everybody about Bigger Pockets, the three people that don't know what Bigger Pockets is all about. 
to the three people who are on Bigger Pockets. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, the three bajillion people on no, Bigger Pockets. Stop. <laughs> Bigger Pockets, think like the biggest, baddest community on the planet for people who are into real estate investing. So we've got if you want to start investing and don't know anything and don't want to pay some get rich quick charlatan to learn, you come, you join our community, you read our content, you listen to our podcast. If you're experienced, you've been doing business forever, you got money and you're just looking to find partners, find opportunities, learn more, you join our community. It's all about democratizing the real estate investing space. And that's what we do every day. We don't care about any of that. What we care about is working with Brandon Turner. What's that all about? Is that great? Wow. Really? <laughs> Did you just do that? I mean, it's bad enough that people are like, ah, Brandon Turner, the co-founder of Bigger Pockets. Dude, really? I mean, I don't really mind, but you know, because whatever, they like him more than me. That's fine. But yeah, he's great. He's amazing. He's just unbelievable. The guy's such a good guy. And I'm his number one fan. Can't figure out how he's working with a guy like you. No idea. Uh, you know what? Nobody likes me. It's completely true what they say about me. We all like you. It's so fun making fun of you. It's great. <laughs> it's like people making fun of me with the board game. So is it that's being good. short and Jewish? What is it? <laughs> I got no idea. <laughs> Where do I go with that? Huh? Don't. <laughs> no. no, you know something that's not short or Jewish? <laughs> it's stackingbenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. Because when you go to the magnify money link, here's what you get, Josh. You might not know this. You get the world's greatest website when it comes to comparing your checking account, savings account, or credit cards to all those available online. So when you head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash magnify money, instead of going into your bank, you know, you go into your bank and you just say, what do you got? And you'll get maybe just a little tiny slice of what's out there. But at magnify money, it's over 90% of what's out there. So check it out. The average person that goes there saves 450 bucks. Nice. And it magnifies your money. But that bomb. Isn't that great? Ah, awesome. Awesome. And our other sponsor, we have a new sponsor this week, is SoFi. Are you familiar with SoFi? I am not, but I will be shortly. You absolutely will be. They are the leader, Josh, in marketplace lending with over $2.5 billion in loans issued to date. Most of those to Josh Dorkin, right? Nice. Nice. No? Yes. yes. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> That's the Smaller Pockets podcast. <laughs> That's the other one. If you've got a great credit score or an early stage professional but need to refinance your student loans or maybe you're buying a house refinancing your mortgage to a lower rate or you need a personal loan to clean up your credit card debt, Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash SoFi, S-O-F-I. And seriously, you won't believe their interest rates, Josh. It is amazing. When Nick at Magnify Money told me he loved SoFi, that's when I knew they needed to be a sponsor on the show. And then when I saw that their interest rates on student loans were way, way lower than most student loan places, I was amazed. So stackybedjamins.com forward slash SoFi. That's it. Great. Yeah, that's the show. That's exciting, no. <laughs> man. That was so much fun. Dude, seriously, thank you for having me on. I love being a co-host. Have me back tomorrow, man. This is the best gig in the world. And thank you for the tens of thousands of dollars you put in my pocket for being on the show with you. I appreciate it. Just so we can say magnify money and SoFi too. Right. Right. You're gonna Check tell you guys. You're gonna tell your friends you have no idea what the show's about. It says something about magnify money. I don't know. Magnify yeah. Hey, money. We got Sheila Bear here from FDIC. Huh? How about that? That is impressive, man. I didn't realize you were as influential as you are until you had <laughs> Sheila Bear. So, you know, congratulations. You are rocking it. Nobody had any idea. <laughs> By the way, speaking of that, you had an awesome guest on your show recently that we'd love to have on here, Michael Gerber, who wrote ah. my favorite book on business, The E-Myth. Yes, yes. We talk about that the was, E-Myth a lot. That was great. He's been around. He's written probably one of the better books in business and we dug in and 
It's definitely a read everybody should check out. It's on the probably top five, top 10 yeah. list of all the books I've ever read. So yeah, number yeah, check one, it out. Number one on mine. And what's funny is, is that when I was with American Express, the head of American Express, that it was his favorite business book. And here's nice. a guy who's not running a little tiny business. Yeah. And, you know, even when the head of American Express says it's all about systems, it's a big thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But on today's show, Sheila Bear and we have the evil HR lady. But first, we got some headlines. So let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline today comes from MarketWatch.com. How the lack of jobs pay for millennials clobbers the economy. This one from Jeffrey Bartash. After riots broke out in Baltimore in April, the son of the owner of Orioles baseball team famously lamented the loss of middle-class jobs that plunged millions of good, hardworking Americans into economic devastation. Seems like it's still very difficult, Josh, for millennials to get jobs today. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, listen, I'm kind of one of those guys that might piss some people off because as somebody who hires, I don't get enough applicants to apply for the jobs that I'm hiring for. That's insane. So I hear this information that, hey, everybody needs a job and, you know, we've got this unemployment rate. Yet when I put out job listings, I don't see people applying. And the people I do see applying aren't taking it seriously. So listen, I believe the data and I know it's out there because I've talked to people. But then again, why aren't they applying? You know, what is it? And by the way, this is not me alone. I've talked to other small business owners and we've had the same conversations. You know, okay, you know, everybody's telling us that there's all these people who are desperate. Well, if they were desperate, they'd be applying for the jobs that are out there or they'd be applying for other jobs that may not be their exact fit that might be slightly less. So what I'm finding, at least personally, is I've actually found people who don't want to take the slightly less great job in order to get a job. They want this golden throne job that's amazing and, you know, they're not willing to kind of suck it up and take this slightly less good job in order to get a job. And that's what you mean by not taking it seriously. Yeah. I mean, now that said, that's really crazy generalizing here. And again, I'm going to piss a lot of people (laughs) off by doing that. But, you know, at the same time, there's a ton of people who obviously working hard at this and who knows what it is. Maybe they need help. I mean, I know that if somebody's applying for a job that we've got, I've got all these little criteria that I'll screen for that I'm not going to put in the listing. So if I put in the job listing, hey, apply using this as your title of your email and somebody doesn't do that, I'm not going to take them seriously. I probably screen out half of our job applicants because they don't do that. Just because they don't follow simple directions. Follow directions. Yeah. And I know I'm not the only one because I learned that from other people and HR folks. So, you know, maybe it's not necessarily that there's no jobs. Maybe the job pool, the millennials, maybe they're not taking it seriously. Maybe they're just kind of half-hearting it. I don't know. That's, I don't know what the answer is. You know, you're a guy though that also didn't go look for the next job. When did you jump off the corporate train and go work for yourself? Man, my job history is bloody. <laughs> yeah. I was a school teacher. I was a prop trader, a stock trader. I was in the entertainment business. You're in the entertainment business now, baby. I'm back. But, you know, I've always known that I needed to work for myself at some point. And so, you know, while working for other people, knowing, like seeing the little things that they were doing wrong and finding a ginger way to say, hey, this can be improved by doing this and having people say, well, you know, we do it this way because we do it this way and blah, blah, blah. And like, okay, I know I can't go there unless you want it. Fine. Now with me, my business, I don't do everything perfect. I know that's for sure, but I'm willing, my ears are open and I want to hear it. I want to hear, listen, this is where you're messing up and we're going to do everything we can to improve upon it. I don't know, man. I've always kind of had that mindset of get out there and do it yourself and create. I like creating. So 
I want to create for myself. And I say to millennials, if you can't find the job that you want, create it. There is so much opportunity in 2015. You know, you listen to guys like Pat Flynn, Smart Passive Income. Listen to, get out there and create a blog, create communities, figure things out. I mean, take the crap job and on the side, do what you want to do. We've got thousands of people who are in our world in bigger pockets who they have these jobs that they hate, but we encourage them, you know what, stay with your job, use the resources, use that income that you've got coming in to do real estate on the side because you're into real estate, you love it. So do that on the side. And then eventually when you get to the point where you're financially secure, then you can let go of the job. I hate hearing about people who are like, I'm going to quit my job because I hate it and I'm going to become a successful investor. Dude, don't do that. Wait, yeah. wait, make sure you're ready. That's so painful. But, did you have a reserve in place or did you start part-time? How did you start when you jumped off the corporate wagon? So I was never in the corporate world per se, but you know, working for somebody else. Yeah. Um, so I had a wife who was making money, you know, bigger pockets when I started it. You know, I've been struggling building this thing for over a decade now. Uh, when I quit my job to be full-time on bigger pockets, I had stacked away enough money for a while, but my wife had a pretty good income. If that was not the case, there was not a chance in hell I was going to leave and take that risk. I'm highly risk averse though. Somebody who's less risk averse might just, you know, if you're young, you're 22, you know, if you got enough money to stack away for a little while, I'd say go for it. Yeah. People wouldn't think that you're risk averse starting your own company. You know, yeah, I'm risk averse within the group of people that are not risk averse. Let's put it that way. No, but that's funny. Most entrepreneurs that I know, the good entrepreneurs are risk averse, but most people yeah. don't look at them that way. You know, yep. our second article comes from CNBC. This is a disturbing article, Josh. Consumer watchdog weighs in on reverse mortgages. Baby boomers are coming up short on retirement savings. That's not a shock, but most of them have a key asset they bring to their later years, their homes. And then they find that there are people waiting to do these reverse mortgages with them where they take the money out of the house. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with a reverse mortgage for people that are in dire straits. Do you know anybody who's ever done a reverse mortgage? I don't. Yeah. I actually know a couple people back from my financial planning days, and it really is almost the last resort, you know, because you're locked into this thing. But it seems that these people are already in dire straits and now we have people taking advantage of them. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, this is across the financial platform, um, this issue, is, and, and that's disclosure. The, the challenge is when you're marketing to people, you know, you want to disclose as little as possible because that's how you get more people to come on board. And, you know, I, we're not going to get into a whole debate here about, you know, the role of government, but, you know. It's a different podcast. That's a different podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but you know, reverse mortgages, you know, you're, this is something that's marketing to old people. You know, it's, it's, you know, you got to be real careful when you do that. You don't want to take advantage of grandma. You know, you really don't want to do that. And I don't think they're necessarily doing that. But I, I, I would say, you know, if you're, if you're getting people to, to take on this reverse mortgage before you let them sign the dotted line, you probably want to make sure that they know that there's the fees and they're still responsible for taxes and they're still responsible for insurance and they still got to take care of this stuff. And, and I think that's where the problem comes in on this article. A guy that I like, a financial guy, David Chilton, wrote a book called The Wealthy Barber, said if your financial plan doesn't fit on a napkin, it's too complicated. Reverse yeah. mortgages are getting really complicated. So you definitely got to know what you're stepping in, I think, before you before you go there. And that's for everything. I mean, listen, yeah, yeah, the, agreed. Yeah. the mortgage crisis, you know, people were signing on the dotted line because, you know, hey, I got no risk. Well, balloon payment, I'm not going to worry about that or I'm not even going to think about it. 
you got to think about all this stuff, guys, when you're getting into, you know, financial instruments, investing and, and loans and things like that. You know, I mean, well, it, it is also your responsibility. Especially in the real estate business, because I can't tell you how many times I would go with my client to the closing table on the day that the mortgage is closing and the, the paperwork is wrong. And you know what? Never once, Josh, never once was it in my client's favor. It was yeah. always wrong in the bank's favor, which is, you know, I, I should be shocked. Well, but, but here's the other issue. And the other issue is probably most of your clients didn't read the entire contract that they were signing. They're like, oh, it's too much. I'm just going to sign it or I'm going to trust the other people to explain it to me versus saying, you know, we're going to sit here for the next four, five, six hours until I've read through this. Every question I have about this documentation is answered and then I'm going to walk out the door. You do that. That's how you protect yourself. After that happened the second time, it should have been after it happened the first time. I always demanded the paperwork a day early. And that's so, so we could get it, it, which was sad because you know how many times the title company actually wants to send that thing a day early. You yeah. know, the ink's never dry at closing, right? Yep. I mean, they never even started, I feel like, until half an hour before closing. But read that stuff ahead of time. Our third article is from Kiplinger. Three simple steps to give your home curb appeal. I saw this and I thought, hey, we got the real estate guy on. We got to talk to him about curb appeal. Step one says spruce up the exterior. Step two, tame the landscaping. And step three is ag color. Would you agree with those? The, the first thing that somebody sees when, when they're shopping for a house is the outside of the house. You know, uh, guys who are the best flippers, the house flippers, what they do is they go, before they've even done all the business inside the house, they got the front of the house looking great. People who pass by are like, oh, wow. If they're doing this on the outside, what are they doing on the inside? That's what sprucing up the outside of the house is, is going to do for somebody. It's going to get them excited. They walk in the door. You continue the excitement by having the house look great and you're going to do a great job. So, you know, make sure it's clean. Make sure, you know, the lawn is kept. Make sure the plants look good. If the if you need more plants, put them in there. Uh, trim it. Make it look good. And 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 the, the part about uh, add color, I mean, you don't have to paint your house purple. Yeah, it's, right. You know, add accents, you know, even flower pots, things like that. Just add color, brighten it up. When, you, when you're looking for housing deals and a house doesn't have color, about how much of a discount do you think that bad landscaping gives you on a house? Does it give you a nice discount or not? Not really. I don't know that it's going to give you a discount, but I think it's going to either... I think it's one of those intangibles that, that can put somebody over the edge. You know, if I'm looking at your house and your neighbor's house and his house looks awesome on the outside and yours doesn't, I'm going to go to you versus him. If everything else is equal, you know, that's what's going to put me over the edge. Uh, I see. I thought you as a real estate investor that you'd be the other side. You would use that as leverage saying, you know what, we got to clean up that, that Oh, I'm saying so. you being you, Joe, me not Josh. me, Josh. <laughs> me, Josh. I'm going to beat the hell out of you. <laughs> Yeah, you'll use everything everything to your advantage. If the if the outside looks terrible, you're going to use that. If there's a hole in the floor, you're going to use that. What, whatever you can use, you're going to use to to get your price down. Moral of the story today: our three takeaways. I think number one is if you're going to apply for a job and Josh is the one hiring, read the fine print. And number two, you if go. you're taking on a reverse mortgage or a mortgage, read the fine print. Yep. And then the third one is. Give your house color and don't paint it purple. I think I heard that too. That's a take. My house is actually purple and it's on the market, which is really funny. That's why you don't want the house purple. You want to stand no, alone. It hasn't sold fast enough. <laughs> So, Josh, where were you in 2007? Well, do you really want to know? I mean, it's a little embarrassing. Which ditch were you in in 2007? Oh, man. Oh, man. Were you yeah. sober? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, always sober, man. Always right. sober. I tell you what, I'm not going to say I was the guy who knew that it was coming, but I definitely knew it was coming. I had a condo that I had seen. I lived in California. I saw the price, you know, go up by some ridiculous amount in a ridiculously short period of time in the early 2000s. And I was like, this is nuts. Yeah, this is crazy. Absolutely can't be sustainable. I don't care. Just the law of the universe is telling me, I don't care. You know, this can't go on. So what am I doing here? Let me downsize my risk a little bit and let me get out. And I did. And then I was like, I got tempted by some investments and kind of got, you know, made some stupid decisions, which actually turned out to be great decisions for everybody in my community because I wouldn't have started bigger pockets had I not made those stupid decisions. But at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, you asked me a question and I was trying to unload some more property you were. before everything really turned over. I saw it coming again and was like, let me get out. I want to be holding relatively little until we hit the bottom or come back up a little bit. I was sitting at one of my kids' swim meets with a friend of mine. You know, those things go all damn day long. They go forever. All of 2007. Oh, it is. It felt yeah. like that, man. It really felt like that. Watch an eight-year-old swim for eight hours. And that's another story. Actually, that is another story that we, <laughs> that we might talk about later. So my friend, who is a CFO of a small dental company that had like 12 dental offices, he had the Wall Street Journal open and he points to a page. He goes, you know what? I think this mortgage thing is going to bring down the entire economy. I'm like, really? You know, I had heard rumblings because, yeah, I think this is worse than anybody really thinks it is. And yeah. look at what happened. Well, Here's the story that put me over really quickly. Yeah. It was policemen in Los Angeles, California, buying million-dollar houses. I was a real estate agent, and I had talked to some other agent, and they are like, yeah, you know, I've got a friend just sold another house to an officer. Like, man, you know, listen, thank you to the police, but, you know, they shouldn't be buying million-dollar houses. I mean... Yeah. Well, they probably should, you know, because they put their lives in <laughs> right. danger, should be making right. more money. But based on the current pay scale. Yeah, it shouldn't <laughs> have been happening. And that to me was kind of the big trigger. Like this is going to turn out really, really badly. And, you know, it did. So, you know. Well, Sheila Bear, the former FDIC chairman, was on the front line. She's written this book called The Bullies of Wall Street. This is how greed messed up our economies. It's a fascinating read, but we're not going to read it. We've got Sheila up here. Nice. Yeah. Sheila Bear coming down to the basement. Let's say hello. And former FDIC chairman Sheila Bear joins us in the basement. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you. Happy to be remotely in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, mom's happy you're here because she looks at people like you and think of all the things you went through during the financial crisis and you kept her money safe. So on behalf of mom, thank you very much. Well, I'll tell her it was my job and I was happy to be of assistance. I have to ask you this question too, which comes from mom. Remember those days when you got a free toaster, if you opened up a bank account, what mm -hmm. happens? Do you do a ton of banking and they make you FDIC chairman? It's a little more difficult than that. I think you need to work in financial services for a while as a regulator, academic, or in the industry, but know something about banking and financial services. And I think with a job that senior, it's good to have had previous appointments too, which I'd had. I'd served both at the uh, commissioner and acting chair at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. I'd also 
Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions at the Treasury Department. So some background experience in government and financial regulation is helpful, too. When you started at FDIC, there's no way you could have expected what was going to happen. To me, it seems like if you're contemplating that job, you're thinking it's kind of a sleepy, uh, you know, (laughs) not a lot happening kind of job. Well, you know, I I joke that I should just stay out of government because bad things happen whenever (laughs) I go in. You know, I joined the Bush administration at Treasury It was February, March of 2001, uh, thinking that that would be kind of a nine to five job. Nice, interesting, important job with interesting issues, but nothing that was going to keep me up at night. And then, of course, we had the terrible 9-11 attacks and then Enron failed later, a few months later. So that quickly became a 24-7 job. Same at the FDIC. I thought it would be a nice Wonderful agency, a great legacy and history of protecting a perfect record of protecting depositors. But again, I thought we'd have an interesting, manageable set of issues. You know, I started in June of 2006, by the end of 2006, so we can see things were going downhill pretty significantly in the mortgage market. Well, you stated at the beginning of the bullies of Wall Street that less than, and this number shocked me, that less than 2% of mortgages had been foreclosed upon prior to 2007. If this was a long time coming, how is that number so low? Those, that's historical data. You know, traditionally, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage came with a lot of underwriting. So lenders, for the most part, retained the risk. And so they required down payments. They required income documentation. They kept the mortgage payment relatively low as a percentage of the net pay, generally, you know, between 30 35%. And with securitization, the people who were making the decision to originate the loan were different from the people who were retaining the risk if the loan defaulted. And so you had a change of incentives from lenders who would keep the risk themselves to originators who would pass on the risk through securitization to investors. And when that happened, they just didn't care anymore about whether the person could actually afford to make the mortgage payment because the risk was being passed on and it became a volume-driven business. And so that's why you had lenders retaining risk. You had very low historical default rates. As securitization picked up steam in the early 2000s, that's when you saw this tremendous deterioration of mortgage lending standards. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand still, I think, this concept of securitization that really I was fascinated by in the book. So the rise of these mortgage lenders that aren't attached to your local bank is really the problem because they don't really care if your loan fails or not. Well, that, yeah, that in a nutshell, that's it. And uh, unfortunately, as these non-bank subprime mortgage originators started making it so easy to get a loan, they started undermining the competitive position of a lot of the regulated institutions, uh, particularly in the thrift industry. You saw a lot of thrifts, you know, Walmart, Countrywide, some of the bigger names got into this business as well, and it was their ultimate demise. But yes, it started in the non-bank, non-regulated sector, Wall Street investment banks were packaging these loans and securitization, selling them off to investors. That started driving down lending standards. Then some of the regulated institutions, especially the thrift, started getting involved as well. And we ended up having a very big problem. It was amazing. One of the big questions I still have is why investors who are buying these mortgage-backed securities, why they didn't look harder. And they'll say, well, the rating agencies were giving them high ratings. And the rating agents made terrible mistakes here, but investors really should have done more due diligence themselves. Because if you look, you didn't have to look too hard to see what was going on. And one of the things I mentioned on my book early and after I started, we went out and bought some data to see what kind of loans were in these mortgage-backed securitizations. And we just couldn't believe what we were seeing. You had to go out and buy the data, but it was available. And if you looked, you could see it. 
Holy cow. You start off the book with a story about a family losing their house and their family dog. You pull my heartstrings immediately, <laughs> Sheila. But these people, talk about their problem and the type of loan they had. This is Matt's family. Yeah, this is Matt's family. So I interviewed a number of families and researched press accounts and had some of my own personal experiences as head of the FDIC. So I amalgamated these into fictional stories. So I don't want to, you know, if this resembles somebody, you know, it was a fictionalized account. But you saw this happening a lot, particularly around Boston, where that story occurred. And it was sad because talk about your law of unintended consequences. So when families lost their homes, they would have to frequently move into apartments and downsize. And a lot of the apartments wouldn't take pets. And then just the financial strain, a lot of these families were really cutting back on expenses. So you did see an increase in a number of areas of families taking pets to animal shelters. And I ended that story on a happy note. They, you did. The, the dog lived. <laughs> they found a good place for it. Oh, you should have uh, said. You I, did, I wanted all these stories to end on a happy note. I will have to tell you, a lot of the families I interviewed, it did not end on such a happy note. But I wanted to give young people reading the book, some hope and optimism about the future. So I made a conscious decision to end each story (laughs) with a happy ending. But yeah, that was a situation. This happened to a lot of families, these horrible mortgages, these steep payment shock mortgages, I call them exploding mortgages in the book, that people really didn't understand. People like Matt's family had a nice, safe 30-year fixed rate mortgage. And and the mortgage broker would come knocking on their door and say, hey, you don't want to refinance. We can pull some equity out of your house. You could take a vacation, you know, whatever. And they would put them into these payment shock mortgages that after a couple of years, the interest rate would spike significantly. And a lot of families couldn't afford the increased payment. They would have to refinance with another round of fees for these unscrupulous mortgage brokers. And then, of course, when home prices started going down, you couldn't refinance anymore because your home wasn't worth what you owed on your mortgage. And that was when a lot of people lost their homes, including Matt's family. So that happened a lot. People are hard on some of the families that got in trouble I don't think they should be because there were certainly some folks who gamed the system. And the next chapter talks about a little girl whose dad was a loan flipper. And so there were some originators who were not particularly uh, sympathetic, but a lot of them were. And Matt's family is a good example of someone who just got duped by an unscrupulous mortgage originator with a mortgage they didn't understand. Well, you should have said spoiler alert before you told us the dog lived. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, I was glad you didn't write old yeller, you know? (laughs) No. (laughs) <laughs> that was good. But Matt's family had something you called a 228 loan. Is that just right. an adjustable? And is it an adjustable rate loan that adjusts for two years and then it's fixed for 28 at this monster interest rate? Or how does that work? Oh, no, it's just the opposite. So for the first two years, it's, it's at a fixed rate. And these fixed rates were high. The so-called introductory rate was seven, eight, nine percent And then after two years, they would adjust to 11, 12, 13 percent. So the the payment shock, because, you know, the interest is front loaded. So the payment shock, your payment can be easily going up by 30 percent or more with these payment shock loans. They were designed to force families to refinance. And the originators like that because, again, they got paid up front. So every time a family had to refinance, they got a new round of fees And that was how mortgage originators were compensated. They were compensated up front with origination fees. And so they liked these mortgages that would just force families every couple of years to refinance. If people are familiar with the concept of churning in the stock market, this is kind of the mortgage equivalent of churning, forcing people to keep having to turn over their mortgage. Are those loans still available? Not really. You know, I worry. We haven't done as much as we should to reform uh, securitization. So I worry that they could come back and they may still be available in isolated pockets. We pushed, I pushed uh, successfully so to make sure you couldn't do these mortgages unless the borrower's current income would support the higher payment. And that virtually got rid of the product. 
And now you have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which also has strong ability to repay standards. So even if there's a payment reset after a couple of years, it has to stay below a certain percentage of the borrower's income. So there are much better regulatory protections now than there were then. One more loan I wanted to talk about, which was Anna's loan, who you mentioned earlier. They had a pick-a-pay loan. And it's funny, I was a financial advisor for 16 years. And luckily, maybe I didn't work enough with subprime to know what these were. (laughs) But what's a -a pick-a-pay loan? Well, a -a pick-a-pay was actually, that was the choice. And people confuse the subprime with the pick-a-pay. The subprimes were horribly abusive to borrowers. The pick-a-pays, on the other hand, implied just what they sound like. You could basically pick your payment, and your payment could be lower than what you actually had to pay to pay the interest as well as little principal. So since you could make a very low payment, your principal balance would actually, the amount you owed, the underlying amount you owed on the mortgage would actually get bigger, not smaller. (laughs) Usually you pay down your mortgage. This is kind of paying up your mortgage. So you could have a very low payment, virtually no income documentation, very little money down. I mean, as a professional real estate investor, you know, it was a dream. You could buy all sorts of different properties with hardly any money up front, have an extremely low payment. You wouldn't have to worry for five years. That was a typical term before you'd have to start actually amortizing principal, playing down the principal. And, and of course, if you're a real estate speculator, your assumption is you're going to have sold the house, flipped the house long before five years. So, yeah, these were the mortgage of choice for the speculators. And then, but then I will say, in fairness, some families in very high cost areas, particularly in California, started using them a lot, too, because, again, this mortgage lending craze was really forcing up home prices and making homes out of the reach of a lot of people without this type of a mortgage. And so they were also used by some good faith borrowers. And then, of course, again, assuming they could refinance out and when they couldn't, when home prices went down, they lost their homes as well. We all bought into this thing that everybody deserved a house, it seems like. Yeah, we did. And ironically, we made housing even more less affordable right. with really abusive mortgages and then an overheated market that drove up the home prices beyond the reach of a lot of families. Yeah, it was just upside down, the kind of incentives we were providing. As a finance geek, there was one time I really wanted to be a fly on the wall at a government meeting, probably only one at a government meeting. But in the bullies of Wall Street, I got to be a fly on the wall because you start off the second part of your book with your fascinating story about Secretary of Treasury Hank Paulson's meeting on October 13th, 2008, which is probably the most famous or infamous meeting of that whole time period. Could you tell people that haven't read the book yet what you saw when you walked in the room? Well, yes. I saw the CEOs of the nation's largest banks all milling around, (laughs) waiting for the meeting. And they'd all been summoned there by Hank Paulson, who is the Secretary of the Treasury. And I don't think they really all fully understood why they had been summoned. The reason was, was that Paulson was going to tell them about all these government support programs. Uh, Most importantly, that he was going to ask them to accept a lot of government investments, capital investments in their banks in an effort to stabilize the system. And, you know, as I say in my book, I think some of the banks needed that assistance. Most of them actually didn't. They took it. But I think it did end up uh, stigmatizing all of them, which I think was unfortunate. And in some, the responses were so different. One of them was complaining about John Thane, who was then the CEO of Merrill Lynch for a very short time period, was complaining about salary restrictions and worrying that if his Merrill Lynch was one of the weaker institutions, definitely needed some capital support, but worrying that somebody was going to try to limit his pay if he took this money. So the attitude among some was quite astonishing. Citigroup, similarly, the CEO of Citigroup was saying, wow, this is really cheap capital, which for his bank it was because his bank was so sick. There was no private investor on the planet, I think, that would have invested in Citigroup. So any capital was going to be cheap for them. It was kind of stating the obvious. 
So I think it was interesting, the different kinds of uh, reactions. Dick Kovacevich, the head of Wells Fargo, which was one of the stronger banks that didn't really need the capital, I believe, was quite resentful that he was kind of being put into this group. But I think uh, Paulson thought, and he said this in his book, that he wanted everybody to take it, even the healthy banks, because if they just forced it on the unhealthy banks, those unhealthy banks' problems would become worse because it would put big target on their forehead that the government thought they were really uh, weak. So yeah. it was an amazing meeting and it was a spectacle I would never want to witness as a government official or as a taxpayer. It's really inexcusable the kinds of risks the taxpayers had to take to get this system stabilized after these guys for so many years made so much money and their shareholders made so much money off of this type of high-risk activity. And so it was a sad day for American capitalism when you have the government coming in and putting billions and billions of dollars into the largest financial institutions in the world. And people like to say, oh, well, the bailouts made money. And that just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up because <laughs> we didn't know at the time. It's really crazy. We didn't know at the time. A taxpayer's tremendous risk. Then, of course, the return on a cash flow basis, you're a geek, so I'll tell you, on a cash flow basis, just in terms of money in, money out, yeah, it did make money. But in terms of if you look at opportunity cost, I mean, the market return the taxpayers could have demanded as the markets were seizing up was much, much higher than what their actual return based on the cost of these various programs. So I hate to hear people rationalize the bailouts like it was OK because it made money because it didn't really make money if you look at opportunity costs. Yeah. And we didn't know at the time it was inexcusable for taxpayers to be asked to take those kinds of risks. I have to say, when you were talking just now about John Thane, that was the one point in the book where I think I audibly made a noise while I was reading <laughs> while I was reading the book. Just at the first, and not to pick on him so much, that that seemed to be the Wall Street attitude of, okay, how do I protect myself? Not how do I protect all these people? How do I protect yeah, exactly. me? How do I, yeah, how to protect my bonus? So I, I joked as I was showing crisis of these guys just have to take a cut in their bonuses. Right. But, you know, I think uh, in fairness, Ken Lewis, who was the head of Bank of America that just bought Maryland, and that proved to be his undoing. Credit to him. He countered that and said he thought the last thing they should be talking about was what their salary was going to be. So good for him. I think he showed a better sensitivity than certainly Mr. Thane did. I think Mr. Thane has since expressed regret for making that comment, which was quite astonishing. And I guessed too during the meeting, but hopefully he's learned he's learned a lesson too <laughs> yeah. after all the criticism he got for it. <laughs> I remember, of course, as I think everybody listening, there was an outcry against the whole too big to fail thing. Do you think it would have been healthier if more banks had failed? I do, you know, and I think the problem is the bankruptcy process doesn't really work. Traditional bankruptcy does not work very well for financial institutions because you have a financial institution's assets are their financial assets. You need to have a continuous flow of money to fund those assets. It's not like a traditional company with bricks and mortar, tangible assets. Your assets are financial. So for a lot of reasons, traditional bankruptcy doesn't work very well. That's why the FDIC has always had a special process where you can continue to fund the bank to keep it operational, not for the shareholders and creditors. They, like in bankruptcy, are, take the losses. But for the people who use the banks, the customers, you know, the small business that needs continued access to the line of credit to make payroll or the person going to their closing on their house and needs to have their mortgage funded. So bankruptcy does not work well, but there were tools available, I think, outside of bankruptcy that we could have used to try to get some of these banks restructured. And of course, the FDIC, at least for insured banks, did have a process that I think worked pretty well for the smaller banks. So I think that's one of the positive things of Dodd-Frank is it does give the FDIC broader tools for these larger institutions 
to be able to seize control, impose the losses on shareholders and creditors as they would suffer losses in a bankruptcy process, fire boards, fire executive management, bring in new people, get the bank cleaned up. Those are the kinds of tools that we didn't formally have. That said, though, I think at least with Citigroup, we had a lot of leverage with them. They were desperately in need for government help, and we could have put far more conditions and restrictions on the assistance that went to Citigroup, forced them, for instance, to convert some of their subordinated debt into equity, at least, forced them to create a good bank, bad bank, a real one, so that you got the bad assets off the balance sheet and, and wound down in a separate structure. I think those are the kinds of things, you know, the government got very muscular with GM, it got very muscular with AIG, but it with Citigroup, it was really a light touch. And I think that was a mistake. I think for market discipline, everybody knew that Citi had been very poorly managed and was in deep trouble. For market discipline, there should have been more uh, consequences for Citi. But just from, frankly, from Citi's own perspective, I think it's continued to struggle. It's got much better management now, but it's continued to struggle with all these legacy issues that if they'd taken some pain earlier and restructured and downsized, it would have been a much more nimble, uh, competitive organization. So I think there's a huge mistake. We have formal tools now under Dodd-Frank to do that kind of restructuring and imposition of loss on the bank shareholders, on the shareholders and unsecured creditors, uh, similar to what happened in a bankruptcy. So the tools are better going forward, but I think we could have been more muscular in the tools we had during the crisis as well. What does the future look like for kids? I love the fact that you wrote this for kids. I think what we call it, Sheila, is it middle grade? Yeah, it's for teenagers. I think even uh, early college age kids. I think, well, actually some adults are reading it too. There's there's adults who might find this kind of a book attractive. They don't want (laughs) to plow through, you know, 400, 500 page uh, tome book that's written in very basic language and with very basic explanations, I think some adults are finding helpful as well. But it is focused on young people particularly teenagers. And I did want to, as you say, the final section kind of focuses on the legacy of the crisis in terms of really stretching our government. The national debt has has ballooned. That's going to have to get paid down at some point as part of our stressed uh, fiscal finances. Both the Medicare and Social Security trust funds are going to be falling short in the next 15 years or so. If we started getting on top of that problem now, we could accumulate savings and gradually to mitigate any kind of harsh sudden impact on either taxpayers, uh, young people are going to be paying payroll taxes or recipients, but we're not doing that. We're kicking the can down the road, which I think is unfortunate. Then, of course, the bad labor market, because older people were hit financially. They're staying in the workforce longer. I think monetary policy has also depressed their returns on their fixed income investments. So you're seeing older people stay in the workforce longer, which is hurting job opportunities for younger people. And then just the economy itself, again, I think a legacy of the bailouts is we didn't do what we needed to, especially in the housing market, to really confront and meaningfully deal with all these troubled mortgages. And only now you're seeing the housing market come back, but then it's an even, the wealthier neighborhoods are coming back, whereas the lower income neighborhoods are still struggling. So I think it's a bad legacy. We were not good stewards of the economy, my generation, the baby boomer generation, and we still have a big obligation to kids to get this fixed. But I also wanted kids to understand the kinds of challenges that will confront them and make sure when they become voting adults that they're more aware of these issues and demand accountability from their elected officials, too, to deal with these problems. And the book, Bullies of Wall Street, is available everywhere, I assume? It is, yes. Bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, whatever (laughs) your choice of venue. And want to make sure it was in bookstores, too, because I love bookstores and we want to do everything we can to support them as well. So I hope people enjoy it and I appreciate the conversation and your willingness to 
let me talk about the book because I do feel very strongly about it. Oh, you said this is made for high schoolers and young college kids. Like you said, I'm one of those adults, Sheila, that I love this book. I just love the fact that I could be that fly on the wall and I could hear it from your point of view, what was going on. Because I remember there were days and I was managing client money and I'm thinking, I wonder what Sheila Bear's thinking right now. Like, is she... Because there must have been some long, long, long sleepless days. I'd there be, were many, yes. <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't say congratulations on your new position at Washington College. Thank you. Working with young people, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, it seems to be. With all of your work in education, I think my last question will be this. Student loans. I mean, is this stuff different wave? Well, I think it's the same in the sense that loans are being made to kids. So without the kids uh, fully understanding that the kind of accumulated debt they're taking on and what kind of repayment burden they will suffer once they graduate. And that might be fine. You know, borrowing money to go to school may be a very good investment so long as you fully understand what you're borrowing and that you're going to a school that's going to give you a degree that's going to help you be successful uh, once you enter the workplace. So I do think it's a problem because I think there are some kids who were these for-profit schools have recruited kids very aggressively without really paying attention to the degree they will get is going to land them a job that they can service the loans. Again, since the, it's the same kind of skewed incentives you saw with subprime here again with the government guaranteeing the lion's share of the student debt, these for-profit schools, they have all it's in their interest to bring the kids in and get the money without really regard whether they graduate or get good jobs because the government's going to pay for it if they default. So there again, I think there's a similarity to some of the upside down incentives we provided for subprime mortgages. But I do hope kids and parents be educated about the kind of, if you need to borrow money to go to school, be thoughtful about it. Parents save money if you can. I worry too that some of these need-based programs create upside down incentives for parents not to save. You actually get penalized if you save your kids higher education, which is just absolutely wrong. So I do think it's an area I feel passionately about and and we'll be working at it at Western College is now that I'll be in higher education, trying to come up with better strategies to help kids get to college in an affordable way. Hey, trivia fans. You know, last episode, I asked you about the bot which turned out to be currency from Thailand, who knew? This week, let's do a little comparison shopping, shall we? Which is worth more, 10 Malaysian ringgits or 100 Hungarian fornit? I'll have the answer a little later in the show. Seriously, Joe, who the hell cares? What evil lurks in your human resources department? Here comes the evil HR lady herself, Suzanne Lucas. When you need to hire someone, the process tends to be pretty straightforward. You put a job posting, people send in their resumes, you look through the resumes, pick the best ones, interview some people, and... Bam, you've made your decision, you've hired, done. But there are some mistakes that you may be making along the way. One of those things is forgetting how much power you have. We can talk about talent shortages all day long, but the reality is that you still are the person to say yes or no when you're hiring, and that's a tremendous amount of power. Another thing is that If you are only looking for people who have been dying to work for your business since they were three, you're a 
pompous something else. I don't say that on the internet. But anyway, that's what you are. You're pompous because it's not realistic to have every employee that you ever have be in their dream job. And quite frankly, if you have a customer service person, that's no one's dream job. Really, it's not. Who wants to spend their day being yelled at by angry people? Another thing to think about is that job seekers are held accountable for every career choice that they've made. So why wouldn't they want to be very careful about choosing you? Some hiring managers get their knickers in a twist when people start asking them questions about their company, their plans, their goals. They don't want to answer those. They think, hey, I'm the hiring manager. You should do what I say. But the reality is this person is turning over at minimum 40 hours a week of their life to you. They are darn well entitled to a few questions. Another problem that many companies do is that they lie. Yes, they lie like rugs. Oh, we have flexible schedules. Oh, that won't be a problem. Oh, this is a great project. But then when the person gets on board, you start treating them horribly and yelling if they come in five minutes late or being angry about their font choice or whatever. It's a micromanaging mess. If you are a micromanager, speak up in the interview. You need great people. You really do. If you want your business to succeed, you need to have great people on board. So be honest about what you do. And remember that without your employees, you don't have a job either. If you need help hiring or have general questions about managing, follow my blog, www.evilhrlady.org. I'm Suzanne Lucas. Hello again, trivia fans, and today, do I have an exciting conclusion for you. No, I'm not talking about today's trivia segment. I'm talking about the fact that I'm finally going to get to take a nap in the aquarium. Joe's dad has these buddies I lost to at poker the other night, and when I couldn't pay him cash, they said by tonight I'd be sleeping with the fishes. Isn't that cool? It just, it sounds so peaceful. I mean, Joe's dad's got some really nice buddies, and man, can they smoke some weird-smelling cigars. Anyway, I've got to go grab my pillow, but before I do, here's the answer to today's trivia question, and it was this. What is worth more, 10 Malaysian ringgits or 100 Hungarian fornit? The answer, of course, 10 Malaysian ringgits. They're definitely more valuable. So valuable, in fact, that you don't want to make a necklace out of them. If you wore it around your neck, you'd have ringgits around the collar. Where's that... Did you fill in the cymbal crash after that, like we talked about in rehearsal? The Come on, guys. It's not that hard. Stacking Benjamin sponsored by Magnify Money. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. When you're thinking, maybe your checking account, your savings account, or your credit cards aren't quite what they should be. You know, you've got these credit cards, Josh, and they've got tons of fees, right? The more fine print they can put in oh, yeah. on a credit card, the better for them, right? Well, if you head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash magnify money and you tell them you're looking for a great new credit card, maybe you're trying to pay off your debt and you want one of those 0% transfer cards. If you go to magnify money, they will put them in order. And in fact, they'll put them in order of which one has the least fine print. So check it out. The average person saves $450. And if you're somebody with fantastic credit, you know where you go. Forget about Magnify Money. Head right to 
I'm sure Nick, <laughs> I'm sure Nick at Magnify Money is going to love it. I said that. Forget about that sponsor. Go to our <laughs> other one, SoFi, stackingmanagements.com forward slash SoFi. If you've got a great credit score, you're an early stage professional, but need to refinance your student loans, maybe you're buying a house, you want to refinance your mortgage to a lower rate, or you need a personal loan to clean up your credit card debt. If that's you, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash SoFi. Here's what I like about them, Josh. We've seen all these headlines and we asked Sheila at the end of the interview about student loans maybe being the next big problem, right? SoFi is most widely known for their success in the student loan refinancing industry, and they are the recognized leader in that space. Nice. And they are our sponsor. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash SoFi to learn more. Awesome. We get letters from readers. Do you guys get letters from readers? Yeah, we get letters. Usually it's like, you guys got to stop this. <laughs> stop the madness. Why are you? Yeah, you guys get tons. Of, well, you guys have the forums too, which are going crazy on your site. Oh, yeah. 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 No, they send us letters. You know, listen, at the end of the day, you probably get hate mail too, or maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> but, you know, hate mail, love mail. I mean, I, I ignore the hate. I listen to the love and, you know. Why would you get hate mail? Well, people get so invested in this stuff, you know, listeners. They, you know, they. Which is know, great, they, isn't it? Isn't that cool? It's, yeah, it's great. But like, if you kind of veer off in any which way, I mean, we'll get hate mail because, you know, enough of your stupid jokes. Right. Well, you listen to us because of our stupid jokes. No, I listen to you because of the content. Okay. But, you know, if we didn't have the stupid jokes, we'd be every other podcast that is getting thousands of listeners than we do. So, you know, it's like Howard Stern. You listen to him if you love him. You listen to him if you hate him. And we got some haters and it's all good. I love my haters and I hate my lovers. Wait, I didn't say that, did I? <laughs> but don't tell your wife that. Whatever you just said, do not say that. <laughs> this letter comes from Todd. He has a Roth IRA and brokerage account, which he's been contributing to for the last four years. Nice job, Todd. They yeah. were with ING and now Voya. ING changed their name to Voya, by the way, for everyone out there. He's been seeing what he thinks are pretty poor returns and getting charged a good deal in fees. He looked into FIAX. We talked about FIAX on the show a while ago. Josh, you know what FIAX is? Well, and a lot of our listeners might not, so I'll explain that. Fiex is this cool website. It's just fiex.com. It's the same people that did the Waze app, the uh, Love Waze. traffic Love app. It. Yeah. Same people. They dive into your portfolio and they tell you what the fees are and they tell you where the most egregious fees are. So he looked into Fiex and they showed him that he can get very similar funds through Vanguard and pay tons less and the returns were actually higher. He knows some advisors are tied to products, so his current advisor likely can't help him switch. But when the fees are over 1% and the one suggested in some case, save me over 1%, he feels he should switch. He also looked up the funds on Morningstar and Voya isn't getting glowing reviews. So his question, are there times that being an informed investor benefits you by having more fund slash firm options? Would we recommend he switches or stay put? He started a Betterman account so he can contribute more frequently and not get charged the trade fees and start dollar cost averaging. So any idea? This one's on me, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is all you, buddy. Come on. Well, here's so, the al thing. Although, listen, the, really quickly, you know, he was talking about, oh, shucks. You're looking at me. <laughs> you're staring at me, looking into my soul. And I completely and lost it. So it. why don't you answer this one? No. Well, the first thing is, is I think we start with your goal first, Todd. I always like starting with a goal because if I don't have to switch, number one, if it's a mediocre product, bad product is not something I ever want in my portfolio. But if I'm reaching my goal, I'm less in a hurry to switch and maybe pay taxes or trading fees, whatever it might be, than if I am not reaching my goal. So I want to know if I'm on pace for my goal or not. And Todd doesn't talk about that at all. He says that the fund has over a 1% 
fee. Now, international funds like emerging markets, a 1% fee is not a bad fee because they do a lot of trading. A lot of the trading things overseas is difficult. So it depends on what type of stuff we're looking at. Generally speaking, though, 1% is a pretty high fee on a fund. Especially for Vanguard, right? I mean... Yeah, these are the ING funds, but you're right. Vanguard's going to be way, way, way lower. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So getting the fees down can never hurt. I mean, can never hurt. If he's going the right way, though, and he has the right asset allocation, meaning the fund is the right type of fund, make sure you're not switching to the next hot thing. Because here's what some people will do. They'll, they'll go to Morningstar. Their fund is a one-star fund. They'll find a five-star fund. What they don't realize, it's a five-star fund that buys, you know, just Asian stocks. And all of a sudden, instead of having the S&P 500, they're buying some different asset class. So make sure you're staying with the same asset class. And I think you got it, Todd. But way to go putting money in the Roth IRA. Great. Well, Joe, you were talking about diversifying. And, and I think probably to add on, since I can't add on to anything of intelligible information to the direct question here. I mean, I think it's huge to be able to diversify and make sure that you're not putting all of your eggs into one basket, all your eggs into one asset class. And whether that means you know, mutual funds, stocks, bonds, getting into real estate. If you're into real estate, not just flipping in one market, looking at other markets, buying hold in different markets, things like that. You know, at the end of the day, if you're too invested in any one thing, one area, one class, it could bite you if something happens. So that was my question for you, Josh, is do you invest outside of real estate or is it all real estate? You know, I just sold a bunch of stock because I stopped watching it. I've owned these shares forever and ever. And I was like, you know what? I used to be a trader. So, you know, I would trade super short term. I mean, literally like seconds buy and sell. And then I got to, to more kind of the holds that, that would go, you know, I did daily, I did weekly and annually now. But at some point I got so busy with work and family and everything else, I realized like I wasn't looking at my portfolio and I stopped and I was like, oh no, that stock that I thought was $75 is now $53. And I had gotten the alerts that I had set for when it drops below, but I ignored them because I was busy with everything else. Oh no. Yeah. So I realized, hey, I've lost all this money and said, this is crazy. I can't do this. I can't trade anymore. I'm busy. Life is busy. I'm going to just take it and put it into some funds. And, and so that's what I did and found some great Vanguard funds and put money there. And I think for me personally, you know, I trust the market. I trust the market may turn and probably will turn pretty soon negatively, at least in my opinion. Over the long term, there's nothing better than following the market as a whole, I think, and personally. And so let me invest in some funds that do that. You know, he talks about his advisor, and I don't think advisors should be tied to products. I mean, if yeah. you have an advisor who is so emotional about his product versus being emotional about you and you getting where you're going, time for a oh, new yeah. advisor. Yeah. You know, that's frustrating. So, well, and they're probably making fees on those products too. They are, but you know what? I think a good advisor is almost like, you know, we could have a great talk, you and I, about people selling real estate. Sure. Because the one time we were talking about this on a roundtable a few weeks ago with Paula Pant, Greg McFarlane, and Jason Hull, talking about the one time that it's difficult having a real estate broker in your corner is when you get to negotiation land. Because when you get to the negotiation table, the real estate pro, as you know, doesn't make a lot of money negotiating. So when you were selling real estate, when you were a real estate agent, I'm sure though, just knowing you a little bit, you still wanted to get the best deal possible for your client. Oh, absolutely. And this is the case with so many different trades. It's, you know, are the incentives aligned so that the client and the manager or the service professional's interests are together. It's in the interest of a broker or agent for a property to sell at as high a price as possible because they make more money 
And at the same time, like, you know, you see a lot of these agents who, especially the ones who don't know what they're doing, trying to encourage people to list it at really high prices, which may not sell. Right, right. You know, that's not in your interest. Your interests are not aligned there. You know, they're trying to be greedy. Yeah, yeah, listen, I mean, you just have to be smart in whatever it is, whether it's picking a broker for selling real estate or picking somebody to help you pick stocks. I mean, you want to interview them beforehand and make sure that their interests are lined up with yours. And there's no guarantee that's going to happen, but be smart. I think, Evan, somebody who's not aligned to products and maybe will just charge you a set fee is probably a better way to go. If they're so worried about the product that they don't want you to get out of these ING or VOIA funds, then Todd, probably not the right person for you. Thanks for the question. You know what? Send us a question because a lot of times people have the same exact question you do. And not only will we give you our just brilliant answer on the air, but also you might be helping somebody else who's out for a jog, out for a walk or driving their car and listening. Thanks for the questions. Got to say thank you also to everybody who's left us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, because a lot of people don't know this, but this is the way that we find new listeners. And it's so exciting when we see that we got a new review, even some of the ones that are not that kind, Josh, even though we will not tell you to leave an unkind review, (laughs) and we generally don't like them. Whenever somebody leaves us a review, especially on iTunes, nobody knows how the algorithm works. But what we do know is when somebody leaves a review, we jet up the charts. And we have been lately, between number 10 and number 20 in the iTunes. Watch out there, bigger pockets. I know you guys are always sitting there at like number three. Someday we'll be like number you got this, man. You're awesome. six, seven. Yeah, right. We always forget to go over the Stitcher reviews. So I've got a couple of these. First one comes from Patrick, five stars. This one's going on mom's fridge, Josh. Jazzed is the headline. Jazzed. Do you like jazz? I do. Great show, exclamation point. Entertainment through personal finance. Are those your jazz hands? You got it. (laughs) I'm months behind listening to them all, and average Joe and I are on the same page. Joe and OG will leave you jazzed about personal finance. He forgets, but Joe was searching for the appropriate word once, and he was yelling it out in advance, and then I found the word, and the word was jazzed. It was an October 2014 episode. Thanks, Patrick, and that one's going on the fridge. Also going on the fridge is this review from FF123. Five stars again. Time well spent. This is a great personal finance show. <laughs> Maybe very, very good, but great is a little, uh, I don't know. We'll take it. Don't push it, buddy. A combo of solid information and good times. Your time's well spent with the show. Thank you to FF123. And once again, if you can leave us a review, that helps us a ton. We thank you very much for everybody who's taken time to to uh, do it. Just do it, guys. It helps. That, seriously, Joe's a good guy. He's got a great show. Everybody's if, doing it. If you don't listen to Joe, listen to me. <laughs> Leave this guy some reviews. Make sure that you put in the review that I'm doing it because Josh told me to That's do it. Right. But leave a review. Come on. It was going to be four stars, but it's five because Josh is on the show. Suddenly it's two. <laughs> Bad choice, Joe. Why did you bring that dork guy on? There it went. Hey, for those of you new to the show, you don't know that this is where we say goodbye to any financial planning topics. We're done with that stuff, Josh. And you've never been in the co-host chair until now. So yeah, you're off the hot seat, pal. I'm usually the host or the victim. (laughs) And in this case, you're neither. 
I did tell you that earlier today, didn't I? I I said, I'm not going to set you up. I'm not going to. So far, so good. I'm not going to grill you. Except for that letter that we just read and I completely, you know, bumbled. I thought that was fine. Your advice was fantastic. Todd's a nice guy. He loves you. Todd, you're awesome. At this point in the show, we no longer talk financial planning. So if you've got to go and that's all you're interested in, we'll see you next time. But for those of you that want to hang out and have a little more fun, we talk about movies because OG and I, we see a ton of movies. Last year, I saw over 70 movies and a lot of them stunk. So we kind of take the bullet for you. But today, I'm not going to be talking about the movie. You saw this movie starring Mark Wahlberg and some guy named Denzel, apparently. Denzel, is that his name? Oh, yeah. This is called Two Guns. You ever heard the saying, never rob a bank across from a diner that has the best donuts in three counties? That's not a saying. Yes, it is. No, it's not. I get what you're saying, but it's not a saying. It is a saying. It's a saying now. Go! Everybody sit down on the floor. Fire and roll! They're robbing a bank, Josh. Never rob a bank. they? Never rob a bank across the street from the best donut shop in three counties. Oh, yeah. Everybody loves donuts. Oh, my God. Mm. You know, get me Dunkin' Donuts as a sponsor. Come oh, on. that would be heaven for me. It would be amazing. I you love have those no guys. idea. My wife Dunkin' is- Donuts. Check it out. Best coffee in town. <laughs> have you gone to Boston much? I lived in Boston. Did you? There's more Dunkin' Donuts there than Starbucks. I mean, they're on every, they're like Starbucks in every other city. It's the best. And Dunkin' Donuts, please send a check to Joshua Dorkin at. Don't even send a check. Send Send unlimited donuts. Yeah. I was going to say. I'll go with the French Crullers dipped in chocolate. Oh, I like the Bavarian cream. Give me the Um, Bavarian cream. uh, Mm, Some chocolate milk. Yummy. But anyway, you saw two two guns. guns. Yes, I did. You know what it was? We had just got a new mattress this past week. Just bought a brand new mattress. <laughs> really excited. Mattress. I, I didn't. <laughs> How does this I get to two guns? Can I tell a story, please? <laughs> yeah, all right. Very interruptive here. <laughs> bought a new mattress. I decided that I would send my lovely wife, Julie, out to do so without my assistance, which, by the way, don't ever do that. Send my wife to buy a mattress for you. She goes, she buys the firmest, hardest mattress oh, no. on the planet. It was like laying down on a rock. <laughs> it was oh, no. awful. And so at three in the morning, I just gave up the first night. I was like, I can't do this. I went downstairs. I couldn't sleep. I'm on the couch. And this movie with Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg, you know, like put two amazing dudes together. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm like two guns. What? I never heard of this. It was awesome. Totally cool. Lots of fun. You got Denzel being just Denzel, you know, and Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, that guy, you know, Wahlbergers, Wahlberg. They're shooting it up. They're friends. They're foes. You may not know. There's action. There's cartels. There's kidnappings. There's all sorts of cool stuff. I'm not going to tell you the plot. I'm not going to ruin it. But if you want a fun action movie, this thing is absolutely outstanding. And they may or may not be in a situation where lots of money is flying in the air for one purpose or another. And yeah, there's a cool donut shop across the street from a bank for some reason. Two questions. Would your wife like it? My wife would like it because Mark Wahlberg is in it and (laughs) he always looks good. And, you know, come on, Denzel, Denzel, ladies, please. Yeah. Do I need to say any more? Yeah, we talked about Spy on Monday's show and a friend of ours went with us specifically because Jason Statham was in it. Stella said, I'm going because of Jason Statham. And that was it. Didn't care about anything else. Well, and we go see movies because name that actress, you know, fill in the blanks, isn't it? Not really. Guys don't do this. We're not shallow like that. We We are not shallow. No, 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 no. Good plot. 
Give us yeah, a good that's plot. that's all I care about. Bring Dialogue. Some t- bring some tissue. Got to cry a little in my movie. That's what I want. I don't need guns. Yeah, I did you guns. cry at the end of this movie? I cried throughout the movie. <laughs> no wonder it's like, a big problem. I was like, why, can't, why don't my arms look like that? <laughs> Every time I see these movies, I'm like, how do, do I, I get my abs? How do I get that deal? <laughs> and then the next day, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm going to start working out that hard. Yeah. Nope. And then I'm like, you know what? Tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So a big what thumb up. the second question? Oh, the second is, what about kids? Kids what about them? Can kids watch this movie? Depends on what kind of parent you are. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a bad Are you parent. a good parent or a bad parent? Yeah. No, I, mean, you know, I don't even I, see the rating here. Probably an R or something. Yeah, it's an R. You know, I wouldn't bring my six-year-old, but, you know, if you got some young boys who you don't mind hearing a lot of cursing, seeing a lot of people die, that's still good, you know, you, you expose take your, them to the world. You could take your six-year-old to this new Pixar movie coming out, in and out I think it's called. A Pixar movie named in and out Really? That is not that fitting. That is not that fitting. I did take my six-year-old to see Wicked, but in and out seems more like the Dirk Diggler type of film. A whole different thing going on there. Right? Fascinating. But so the answer is maybe not. Is that the one where the little emotions are in your brain? Yes, the emotions. Yeah, see, you know. Yeah, we'll, you know. You know, it's prop, called prop, Inside see. Out. I just looked it up here. Inside <laughs> Out. Big difference there, Joe. <laughs> big, huge big difference. difference. At least There's, it wasn't called in and out and in and out and in and out. Yeah. There's yeah. no princesses in it. So I'm probably, my three girls are probably not going to force me to take them. They're not. Okay. All right. Yeah. But you like Pixar movies, I'm sure. Look at you. Yeah. I mean, what does that mean? I have no idea what that means. Was that an insultment or was, was that it uh, was generosity? Not. It was that you're a sensitive guy who likes a good Pixar flick. There's I nothing wrong with that. Oftentimes. I, I actually like all that. Did you see Up? Oh my! Crying. I was depressed in Up. Though. You can't I mean, not cry the first ten yeah. minutes of Up. If you don't cry, you're not human. Oh, that was horrible. Oh, oh my just. god! Yeah. By the way, if you're listening to this show and he hasn't already done a review of Up, if you've got little children, just skip to minute like twelve because you know we don't need little kids seeing that. That was horrifying. That was horrifying. You know, it was even more horrifying when we went to see the original Jurassic Park when our kids were young, because my kids are in college. We did not take our kids because we knew better, but there were people there with their children. I don't know if you remember this, but a lot of people took their kids because Barney, that big purple dinosaur was big, like that, yeah, yeah. you know, okay. the people liked with their kids. So Barney was big. So they thought Jurassic Park was kind of like Barney. And then I heard some... I don't know about those people, man, because that trailer... Wasn't nothing like Barney. I, know. I mean, for crying out loud. Again, read the fine print, people. Because if you went in thinking that Jurassic Park was going to be Barney, you're also possibly the guy that didn't read your mortgage. It wasn't anything Barney. No, it's nothing like it. And the smokes. fine print was not that fine. It was pretty no. big. That was obvious. Yes. Glaring. Yeah. Some radio comedians said, it's a lot like Barney. You know, I love you. You love me. I'll eat the whole family. <laughs> It's the whole thing. Nice. All right. Good movie. Go see Two Guns. Yeah, it was great. A lot of fun. Check it out. Awesome. Love that. Streaming on video? Do you know? Or did you just watch it on TV? You watch it on Netflix? or HBO or one of those things. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. It was somewhere streaming somehow. Got to say a ton of thanks to people, of course. Thanks to Sheila Bear for being on the show. Check out Sheila's book, The Bullies of Wall Street. We'll have a link to it on the show notes at stackingbedjamins.com. Thanks again to Suzanne Lucas, the evil HR lady. Obviously, you want to go to the evilhrlady.org to check out her site. It's so hilarious. If you ever want to hear bad HR stories, I mean, you know, car wreck and slow motion stories, evil HR lady. So check her out. Also, thanks to Doug for bringing down the mail. And thanks to you, Mr. Dorkin, for spending the last hour with us. It's been awesome, man. 
I'm so glad you could do it. And on short notice too. Yeah. Fly all the way from Denver to Texarkana to hang out in the basement. Where's my shotgun? Well, we got some serious board game playing now. I'm excited. Let's do it. Going on. All right, everybody. We'll see you on Friday here. Stackmore Benjamins. This show is the property of the Free Financial Advisor, LLC, copyright 2015, and is produced by Joe Salcihai and edited by Joe and Isabella Bianca. You'll find notes for this show at stackingbenjamins.com. You'll find notes for a good show at moneyplansos.com. Our apologies to Dave Ramsey. I know he wants to be on the podcast, but we aren't accepting guest spots this week. The people responsible for this show have been sacked. Welcome to dessert. Ooh, yummy. Well, you know, we had to call it dessert because too many people were getting on iTunes going, I love the after show. And the rule is what happens in the after show stays in the after show. We do not talk about the after show. So it nice. is now dessert. So now people say, I like dessert. And nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. They think you're a whack job leaving us the world's weirdest review. Awesome. Listen to this one, Josh. Thousands lose power in San Francisco due to squirrel. No, this is from... Stop. Reuters, a squirrel knocked out power for some 45,000 energy customers in the San Francisco Bay Area last Monday, according to officials in the local Contra Costa Times newspaper. Pacific Gas and Electric Company said on its Twitter account that service had been restored for virtually all those affected, but did not provide a cause for the disruption. And then later on, we find out that it was a squirrel that impacted the equipment at the El Cerrito substation. Wait, you didn't read the next article. So the article underneath that was talking about squirrel on sale at your local Chinese restaurant. <laughs> Yummy. Your, mm. your beautiful San Francisco restaurant. <laughs> San Francisco Chinese restaurant. This article made me think of you because... Oh, we, thanks. Well, like, yes. <laughs> wow. Like, no, you're, uh, hey, Joe, thanks for letting me come on the show. Yeah, great? Josh, here's my middle finger. Here's what I thought of you is that you see these shows like the Property Brothers, you know, these flipping shows where people get in there and then they find these surprises. I was watching that husband and wife that flipped the blonde woman and her husband and they flip houses and they found a dude like sleeping in the back bedroom when they bought it at auction. You have to have, you <laughs> You have to have some squirrel ate the power kind of stories, like just these I, bizarre. I had, a, I had a tree rat when I was renting an apartment in Los Angeles. I had a tree rat. I mean, I'm telling you this thing, I don't know, easily a foot. And then the tail was like another two feet. This thing was monstrous. And it wasn't one. Tree, squirrels, tree rat, tree something or other. These suckers had gotten into the walls of my apartment. Oh no. They chewed through the drywall, chewed through the wires on the oven, 
I mean, they were running around in the apartment. They were rats. Yeah, tree rats, I think they were called. But my dogs were freaking out, jumping on the bed, shivering. There's rat poop everywhere. The worst, the landlord didn't want to do anything about it. I mean, this was literally like a two-week thing where my wife and I were not sleeping. We were like flipping out, not knowing what to do about these tree squirrels. Finally, we got rid of them. But yeah, squirrels are nasty. They are the rats of the universe and tree rats are the rats of the universe. But yeah, I mean, listen, you go into properties that people are terrible. The human beings are awful. The guy who works next to me, a guy who works for me, Scott, just bought a duplex. You know, they had poured concrete into the toilets uh, huh? because it was really? a middle finger to the bank. Oh, you know, I mean, people seriously, I mean, listen, sometimes bad things happen and sometimes it's unfortunate, mostly it's unfortunate, but you know, sometimes people make their own beds and at the end of the day, don't stick it to somebody because you screwed up and, you know, pouring concrete into a toilet. Oh, one of my clients was a, well, I, I had several clients who were landlords. I'm a landlord, but one of them had a duplex, had a top bottom House. Talking about an apartment, right? Yes. Yes. Had an upstairs and a downstairs apartment, right? And the guy upstairs got angry at the people downstairs. So he stopped up the tubs, stopped up everything and turned all the water on just oh. so he could teach the people downstairs a lesson and left. So, awesome. so when he left, all the floors ruined. Quality individual. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Solid. Boy, he, he taught those people downstairs a lesson. That was, by the way, when my client decided real estate wasn't for him. Nice. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> awful. So yeah, th- listen, these things happen. Real estate... That's why, you know, you need money, guys. That's why investing with no money and listening to the get rich quick guys. Yeah. Hey, you don't need any money. Actually, you need something called reserves, everybody. Reserves is money just in case. (laughs) And you need it because tenants will do that. Things happen. Nature hits you. These shows make it look so sexy, don't they? They make it look so incredibly sexy. It kills me. It kills me. You know, we talk about it all the time. The shows don't actually talk about what really happens. They don't actually cover the real numbers. Hey, I bought this property for $100,000. I sold it for $115,000 nine months later. I walked away with $15,000 in profit. Bam. Yeah. Wait a second. Holding costs, agent commissions. Hold on. Hold on. Time value of money. What? You are actually losing money. You didn't profit at all. But thank you, TV shows, for getting millions of people excited, unprepared, buying and flipping houses so they're losing their shirts. That's awesome. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I want to talk about squirrels. I want to talk about you. <laughs> nice. And in other news on Google News, orphan baby squirrel turns Savannah residents' life upside down. How about the Chicago Tribune, Rudder? I don't have a short attention span. I just squirrel. Or how about Twiggy the water skiing squirrel performs at X Games on UT the Daily Texan. Do you just squirrel pull up squirrels? Steals GoPro and takes it on an adventure. My God, there's more squirrel news than I can do For- something with. Fort Wayne, Indiana, which by the way, I'm a hockey fan. And in Fort Wayne, they played against my team where I grew up. Well, it wasn't my team, it was my favorite team, the Kalamazoo Wings. The Fort Wayne Comets played against them, but they had this old place where they played, and a couple of years ago they renovated it. And there was this huge story about how Right after they got it renovated, a squirrel chewed through the air conditioning power cords and they ended up with a multi-million dollar problem on their hands. The bad news was they had a million dollar deductible on their insurance policy. So the city of Fort Wayne, and there was a way they knew it was a squirrel. They didn't say in this article that you and I read how they knew it was a squirrel. In the article I read about Fort Wayne, Indiana, they knew why it was a squirrel because the squirrel was still there. It was still attached. 
Nice. Yeah. yeah, this one, I you know, I felt like they left out some details. I wanted to know, yeah. you know, the, the story of this squirrel. You know, where did it come from? What was its motivation? Did it have a mom and a dad? Yeah, I mean, was he lonely? Just, you know, trying to let out his frustration on the world? Committing suicide. <laughs> That's <laughs> all. Death, death by PJ. You know what? It, it was a big middle finger to the Bay Area. It's like, you guys, or not enough good garbage. You guys or, have or started, getting, stop the plastic bags. You get, guys are just giving me this vegan crap. I want some real trash. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.